Author and hilarious Canadian Ryan North's latest book, How to Invent Everything, is basically an instruction manual for recreating modern life in the unlikely event that you are a time traveler whose time machine has broken down sometime in the last 200,000 or so years. That means it's full of incredibly useful facts, such as this one. The ideal number of heart compressions to administer during CPR is about 100 per minute. And the best way to pull that off is to perform CPR while mentally singing a song that has 100 beats per minute, such as Stayin' Alive by the Bee Gees. On today's episode, Ryan calls in with more useful tips from his book, which I highly recommend buying or at least checking out at your local library. He also talks about how he collected all the research to pull the book together, which I gather was quite an undertaking. Also on today's episode, field editor James Lynch calls in to talk about the time he rode a boosted board from New York to Philadelphia, Roy talks firewood, and tech editor Alex George explains how you can virtually test drive the new McLaren Senna, which costs a million dollars, assuming they'll even let you buy it. As always, I'm your host Jacqueline Detweiler, and you're listening to the most useful podcast ever. So we have with us today Ryan North, who is the author of How to Invent Everything, which is currently on bookshelves and is such a cool book. Kevin and I both have a copy right now and are have been paging It's going it. to be hard to do this interview because I just want to look at the book. I know. Yeah, it is really cool, Ryan. So congratulations. On, Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Have you been getting a lot of good response? Yeah, it turns out being worried about being trapped in the past and not knowing how to reinvent civilization is something that a lot of us have worried about. <laughs> I believe great. that. I think mean, yeah. it's kind of the apocalypse fear, isn't it? Like, that's basically what the apocalypse is, is realizing that without all this human knowledge that we've accumulated over time, like, none of us know how to do anything. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, but it's like a more optimistic version of that, because if it's the future, it's the apocalypse. If it's the past, you still have time to fix it, and you right. can make things better. Right. So it starts with a flow chart to figure out where you are, and then you talk about some fundamental technologies that people will need. How did you go about structuring this, I guess, is my first question. How did you figure out what was going to be most important? And I mean, did you just go historically or how'd you figure it out? Yeah, it's a huge thing, right? Because I thought, oh, I'll just write this book. All I need to do is collapse civilization itself <laughs> into 468 pages. How yeah. hard could it be? <laughs> it turned out <laughs> it was pretty hard. There's a text tree in the book saying what you need to build every technology and what it relies on that's come previously. So figuring that out for real life was really useful. Mm -hmm. And then it was just a matter of figuring out if you're doing this from scratch, but you know what you want to get to, like if you're not doing it like we did, where we sort of trial and errored our way through history, but you know what it's supposed to look like, what civilization is supposed to be, what do you need and what can you get done right off the bat really right. easily? Since we have the book and our listeners don't, what do you think those things are? What do you think you'd have to go for first? The five most important ones I put forward are spoken and written language. We don't think of them as technologies, but they are actual technologies. They're things that we invented for ourselves. We don't get them for free. And those are obviously fundamental. They let you have conversations. They let you have ideas that can survive the death of the host, i.e. you, and go on <laughs> to travel the world. And especially written language lets you ship information with no more difficulty or expense than shipping grain, which is terrific. And we take it for granted, but if you don't have that technology, you're going to miss it. <laughs> and then there's, I call it non-sucky numbers in the book, which is basically a number system that makes it easy to work with numbers. So forget Roman numerals, but stick with what we've got, what we know. And then scientific method, which lets you have developed information in a reproducible and testable way. So you're not taking anyone's word for it. You can actually test what you think is true. And finally, calorie surplus, i.e. farming, producing more food than you, than you can eat, than you need to eat, which means other people can stop worrying about where their next meal is coming from and start worrying about more interesting things like, why do the stars seem to move across the sky? Or, you know, why do people get sick sometimes? <laughs> right. And that, those sort of questions lead to answers that lead to civilization. Right. 
In the book, you have those five things in a table and you list when we could have invented them, which for all of them is 200,000 BCE, and how long we sat around not inventing them. I was curious when you went back and sort of looked at how all these things came about, were you like frustrated with humanity that it took us so long to figure out certain things? I wasn't frustrated. I feel like we did the best we could under some hard circumstances. But I was <laughs> surprised for sure because I think the general idea we have of humans is that we're pretty smart and we are pretty smart. We're great. But I was not expecting these huge expanses of time where we could have invented something and didn't, where we had everything we needed to invent technology and just didn't put the pieces together in the right way. And on one sense, that can be kind of sad and embarrassing because, you know, we could have invented compasses a thousand years ahead of schedule. We never thought of it. The sort of optimistic version of this is if there's all these examples through history of things that we could have invented and didn't for a long time, it stands to reason there's probably something like that right now in 2018 that we're not inventing that we could. And that's inspiring, right? That means there's still new things to be invented, new things to be discovered that are just waiting for us, for someone clever to, to put the pieces together in the right way. And I think that's great. Yeah. I think someone's going to figure out how to divide by zero. I think that's going to be it. And that's going <laughs> to be huge. possibly go wrong, right? <laughs> Won't the universe explode? Uh, maybe. I don't know. It says in here, no. So when you got into some of the later stuff, it's a little bit more maybe useful for people today, for example, like a spinning wheel or a button or like tanning leather or things like that. Mm -hmm. Who did you talk to to find out how to do these things? Or do you just know how to do these things? <laughs> oh, I'd love to. Sort of, let's start the rumor here that I'm just a super genius who knows everything <laughs> and did not need to do any research. But the answer is it was just tons and tons of research and learning. And I was worried at the very start of this project that some things would be so boring and so tedious that they wouldn't be able to be in the book because they'd be so uninteresting. And I thought, you know, things like farming, how boring is farming? I think it's really boring. And then I learned about it, and it's fascinating. The idea that plants are these, we think of them as, as machines that turn dirt and water and sunlight into different food you can eat, like into apples. We can't build a machine that turns dirt into apples, but we get it for free from the environment. We think it's really boring, but it's just fascinating. And crop rotation is something that took us thousands and thousands of years to figure out. Before we knew it, we just died every once in a while when our crops failed. And that's as simple as don't plant the same food over and over for years and years and years. Put your field in two and use one half every year and you'll be fine. Right. And just like basic, basic stuff for a farmer that I never knew. And if you're going to be trapped in the past or something, you need to know too. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, did you ever stop and think when you're writing this about the first guy to figure that out? Like the farmer that was like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we, all those names don't make it down through history, just the ideas do. But that farming Einstein is like, wait a minute. All we need to do is use half our fields and we'll be fine forever. <laughs> like those are big ideas that change the world. And you just had to think of them in the first place. Have you changed your life at all since learning a lot of these things? Is there anything that you kind of do for yourself now that you didn't do before? Yeah, it feels crazy, but I feel like a more confident person knowing that I could be dropped at any point in history and be competent at it now. Uh -huh. But part of surviving in the time is just surviving. And one of the things that's killed the most people in history is diseases that cause diarrhea because you die from dehydration, just from losing too many fluids. And now we have a rehydration drink that's very easy to make. It's basically salt and water and some sugar in a very precise ratio that allows your body to absorb liquids very quickly. And so if you're and you're having diarrhea, you drink this, and you will not die from dehydration because you'll stay hydrated. And I have a friend who went out drinking and drank too much. The next morning, he was like, you know what? I read your book. I'm going to make the rehydration drink. And I was like, go for it, man. That's great. <laughs> and he felt better. It was cheaper than Gatorade or Pedialyte, whatever else people use. So in that way, it has already changed someone's life in the presence of wow. my drinking friend. That's yeah. amazing. So we actually just had an experience on this podcast recently where 
we made butter by shaking heavy cream. It's one of these things mm-hmm. where like, because I'm used to going to the grocery store and it's packaged and it's wrapped in a certain way, I assumed it was very complicated to make, but it turns out you just shake really? the hell out of something for a long time. It was like 10 minutes. Time. It was ridiculous. We all were absolutely shocked. Yeah. So are there more <laughs> things that before you researched how they were invented seemed really complicated and then it turns out like, oh, you probably have the stuff to make one of these from scratch around your house. Yeah. Kilns are an example of that because you're using a kiln to make all sorts of different materials. They turn into forges. That's where you get metals from. It's sort of this fundamental technology. And the earliest kilns, they're so easy to make. You just find some clay and that's usually by the shore of a river like densely heavy clay. You can filter it really easily by just dumping the clay in water and shaking it up. And the heavy like rocks and stuff sink to the bottom. The clay stays on the top. You pour that out and mix it again, filter it, and you end up with this really nice clay that you can just cook in a campfire to make a good enough sort of introductory kiln out of the bricks you make in a campfire. And then this introductory kiln you've made is good enough to reach higher temperatures to make better bricks. Like you're bootstrapping just from some weird dirt down by the river and your campfire. And in the course of a couple of days, you can build an actual working high quality kiln and turn into a forge to start melting metals with. It's, it's not hard once you know how to do it. And that's sort of the, the lesson of the book is there's all this stuff that we think of as being hard because we sort of all have specialized educations now where you get a master's or a PhD, you've learned a lot about a very small subject. And this generalist knowledge of like, if I'm going to be a farmer who's also melting metals, who's also helping treat diseases, who's also doing everything else in a civilization, we don't have that information anymore. And so collecting for this book and learning for this book felt really good. It made me feel like, like I said, more competent person. Yeah, no, that's amazing to think about it. We talk about it sometimes here, even you're kind of living on top of such a pile of human achievement that you're Mm -hmm. like, I use a toilet every day. I know how a toilet works. And then you're like, wait a minute, do I know how a toilet works? And then it breaks. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the things that struck me the most is the idea of anatomically modern humans that show up around 200,000 BCE. And these are humans that look like us and have the same bodies as us, but they're not yet us because they don't have the education, the stuff we know. You take a literal caveman and bring that baby to the modern era and raise it like your own, and that child will be just as smart and intelligent and inventive and creative as any other human born today because they're standing on that giant pile of technology and ideas you described without even realizing it. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. The raw material is always there in humanity. That's amazing. But if you went back there, they would all seem like scary, aggressive zombies. <laughs> <laughs> So one question I have, where would you want to be stuck if you got stuck in your time machine? What do you think is the era you would be most effective in? So that's actually two questions. Where I'd like to be stuck is probably, I wouldn't want to go back too far because I'm really used to things like modern medicine. (laughs) I wouldn't like to be stuck anywhere too far in the past. But where you can make the greatest influence, I feel like we were talking about anatomically modern humans earlier around 200,000 BCE. And we end up with what's called behaviorally modern humans around 50,000 BCE. And these are humans who have started acting like us. They're burying their dead, they're making art, they're decorating their bodies, things like that. And there's a huge gap of 150,000 years where we seem to have the raw material to start becoming human, but aren't doing it yet. And one of the theories that finally pushes over to become fully human is that we invented language, we started talking to each other. And so if you went back to 200,000 BCE and just taught these early humans how to speak, how to talk, how to communicate, how to share you'd be giving every civilization on the planet a 150,000-year head start, which is incredible. It's where you'd have the single most absolutely huge effect on human history. And, of course, you're rolling the dice with that because maybe you go back to the present and we're just a cinder. But if it's not, <laughs> then it's jetpacks and flying 
cars all the way, right? Right. Or both. Probably jetpacks and flying yeah, cars probably. put on Mars and then Earth <laughs> as a center. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this is such a cool book. I can't emphasize that enough for our listeners who want to check it out. It is called How to Invent Everything. Ryan, thank you for talking to us about it today. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Awesome. Bye. So I gave James Lynch a call today. He's our field editor and he's up in Vermont. And we talk to him sometimes about things like kayaking, serene mountain lakes and maple syrup making and whatever you're doing. You're probably doing something with a hatchet right now, I'm guessing. Uh, Definitely. Just shaving. (laughs) So James Lynch got to do a really fun story for us for our November issue, which is about to come out and ride a boosted board from New York City to Philly. And I wanted to find out how that went. So. When you were setting that up, how did you put that together? Did you just get a board and then start thinking about what potential problems there would be? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I looked at a map one time. Actually, I took a bus. It was like, wow, New York City to Philly is way closer than I thought it was. (laughs) And then started thinking about the different ways you could do it. So originally, I was thinking riding a bike, but it seemed kind of plain. So then I've been seeing boosted boards zipping around, and they had just released the new one, the Stealth, which had a longer battery range. I was like, I bet you could do it. Then I just started literally going on Google Maps and clicking through and seeing what the least treacherous way would be to get there. And what is the least treacherous way to get there on a boosted board? Yeah, I mean, my first thought was getting off of the island of Manhattan because I was not really trying to ride it through the Holland Tunnel or over the uh, George Washington Bridge or anything like that. Yeah, that seems tough. But thankfully, New York City's got a beautiful ferry system. So I found a ferry to get me down to Highlands, New Jersey. And then from there, I was literally doing Google Street View, clicking through, trying to see what the posted speed limits were and the shoulder width of all these roads oh that my God. could scoot me across New Jersey through Trenton into Philadelphia. So this is a lot of work. It's not like you could just hop on a boosted board and go anywhere and luck out. Like You would probably run into some problems if you didn't do some serious research. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, especially if you're trying to cover distances. Like My trip was just about 100 miles. It was over 90 miles. And if you ride for that long, you're going to hit something. I mean, I found the Henry Hudson bike path, 25 miles, a 10-foot wide paved bike path through New Jersey that I scooted along and got me away from traffic for the first good chunk of the trip. But it was supposed to be paved, and the first two miles of it was chipped stone. Oh, no. So I got on this path and very quickly just had this board just run into piled up little tiny stones. Oh, my God. What did you do? Well, first of all, I was a little annoyed, so I just hit the throttle harder and tried to just like scoot over the top of them. Which, you know, kind of worked for a little while until uh, I passed a guy walking a dog and I was like, how long is this like this or when is it paved? And he's like, oh, it's paved up ahead about a mile. So I just kind of cut through the woods up into the neighborhood above me and then scooted through the neighborhoods until I could meet back up with an actually paved bike path. Oh, that's smart. So you said the battery life was longer on the stealth. How long is the battery life and how many times did it die on your trip? The extended range, I mean, I was going up and down, and I weigh like 170 pounds and had like a 30-pound pack, and I set the board to eco mode so it couldn't go above, I think I was averaging like 12 miles an hour mm-hmm. with my setup and all the stuff I was carrying, and I could go about 10 or 11 miles. And then when I got towards Philly, it was a little bit flatter, so I got up to 12 or 13 miles per battery. Mm-hmm. And I brought four batteries with me, and I had two chargers. It was a fun game of figuring out when to stop and when to charge. So I ran two batteries dead. I stopped at a nice public library, plugged into their wall for about two hours, charged those two batteries, did another two batteries, and then part of a third, charged two batteries fully. And then I had just about three and three-quarters batteries left, and I ran that all the way to 
Philadelphia. Wow. So I did it on just about eight battery charges. That's incredible. When you change the batteries, can you just like pop it in or do you have to do something crazy? It was actually super simple. They have a nice little Allen key and it was six little Allen key bolts that pop out. You disconnect the cable, connect to the new one on the battery and bolt it down. I mean, I got pretty quick at it. I could do it in a couple minutes, which was nice. So I could keep moving. But yeah, really, really easy. Is that kind of a standard thing? I mean, for somebody who isn't going to do a trip like this, that they would just carry a spare battery just in case? I would say no, probably not. I mean, the booster board was awesome. It was so freaking cool and it worked so well. And I could really see they really market them as a commuter tool, like Uh get around a city. And you've got a really serious range on, like I said, like the extended range battery, you're over 10 miles. So if I were someone in a city and I had an eight mile commute, which is a pretty decent distance, right, if you're that's in a pretty city, far, yeah. I could totally see buying a second charger and then just riding my board to work, charging it when I got to work and leaving it there charging for a couple hours in the day, riding it home, charging it the next morning. I think for most people, one battery is going to do absolutely fine. Right. I made a point to be on the board for 14 hours in a day, but most people, I think you're going to probably want to not be on the board for more than an hour or so. Right. It's tiring for sure. I was going to say, was it really uncomfortable? Yeah. (laughs) It was kind of, uh, I felt like an old man the next day and that nothing really hurt. It had a bunch of aches and pains. Uh Just things you wouldn't really think of. Like I ride with my left foot in front, what would be like regular in snowboarding or surfing or skateboarding. So I had my head was turned left, looking over my left shoulder. Oh, right. And I got such a crick in my neck from just looking over that shoulder all day long. Right. That makes total sense. Something you wouldn't think about. Yeah, it was that kind of thing. And then like the arches in my feet really hurt because boards are concave. You know, they have a little like flex in them. I mean, it keeps you locked in the board nicely, but my arches kind of stressed all day long. Like the next day, my feet felt so tight, but you know. Not many other things I do where I'm like, oh, my arches are so sore today. What other equipment did you need to bring? Because, you know, you were doing this. You said you had a pack. What else did you have? I mean, my first thing I bought, I got a great deal of skateboarding shoes, some globe skateboarding shoes that work great. And then I brought a pack and a helmet. I got a triple eight helmet. It worked super comfy. It goes down to the back of your head, like a skateboarding style helmet. So you fall backwards. You're not going to crack your head open, mm-hmm. hopefully. And then I brought bike lights, like flashing bike lights, because I really wanted to be seen on some of these roads. I believe that. Probably no one's really expecting a boosted board, like on the shoulder of a highway in a lot of places. No, definitely not. Got some weird looks for sure. So how much does one of these cost? Boosted's got a whole sweet lineup right now. So like I said, I was on their top line with the uh, boosted stealth. It's like 1600 bucks for the boosted stealth. Okay. So that's pretty expensive. I mean, that's like a really nice bike. Yeah. I mean, for comparison, that's more than I paid for my motorcycle. Right. What do you use it for up in Vermont? I would do some just going around town. I work downtown about a mile and a half. I just cruised into town. And then I'd ride to the grocery store. I bought beer on it one time, which is pretty fun. <laughs> but then the other thing, like I had one day where I forgot to charge it when I went to bed. And so I rode to work and I got to work on the charge. But then the thing was dead. And I didn't have my charger with me. So I had a pretty much dead boosted board, which they're heavy. And you have to like, carry them if they're dead. But it had just enough battery life left that I just put my packages that I had gotten in the mail. I got a big box. And I just set it on the board and just had the board carry my packages home for me. <laughs> That's a great idea. Would you recommend anybody actually taking a long trip on one of these things? I mean, the long trip, if you're a little bit like me, which is just like, can I do this? Then, yeah, it's fun. and It's a cool challenge. But uh, they're definitely designed for urban commuting. And if you have a lifestyle that fits that, like you've got some nice paved roads, 
all the way to your work a couple miles every day. I mean, it's a blast. It rides like a skateboard. It gets you there. And it was tough as nails. I was super impressed with the board. It did really, really well. Awesome. Well, enjoy your time up in Vermont uh, on your boosted board and whittling and kayaking and whatever. I don't even know what you're doing up there, like having an amazing time. And thanks for calling in. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. Time again for your favorite segment, Wisecrack Facts. Wisecrack Facts. Wisecrack Facts. I think this actually is Eleanor's favorite segment. Oh, you guys. Okay, so I don't think that puns are really the direction that we're going to go with this, to my chagrin, because when I started digging into wisecracks, they're a clever or sarcastic remark. I haven't run across. I don't think a pun's a wisecrack. No, I I don't think so either. I would have thought that either, but Eleanor did want to make it puns, because I believe you... I've reined in my animal impulses. Do you have one? We'll let you do one. Do you have one? No, I can't. Doesn't have a single pun. (laughs) For another time. But anyway, today is about wisecrack facts, which I think is more like a zinger or like a good comeback. Okay. Which they've been around for about a century now. Really? People weren't telling jokes before then? People started using the term wisecrack in like 1924. And there was a whole dictionary in 1926 called the Wisecrack Dictionary, where they basically did like a newspaper contest to have people like send in their favorite wisecracks. And they're so old timey, like they're so 20s. So I pulled two of them. Someone sent in getting the wrong number, which meant getting a date with an ugly telephone operator. <laughs> and uh, this doesn't even make sense. Yeah. <laughs> well, wait. The thing about old jokes, they sometimes you're just like, what? Wait for this one. If I told you to go buy a violin, what would you think I was trying to say? That it's like the saddest. My life is That's what so sad. What would you, you would think yeah, that too? Yeah. Apparently, it's an expression to politely inform a listener that his hair is long. Like your hair is too long. Oh, I get it. Like you look like a musician. I guess. Or do you take that extra hair and make bow? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like to string a violin. So those are the 20s. We're going to fast forward a little bit. We better. (laughs) And for the end of our wisecrack facts, I went back and found the best presidential wisecracks of all time. Because I was thinking, I was like, when did presidents start making jokes and speeches and stuff? Was it when they started the National Press Correspondents Dinner? No. I think as long as there was a press corps, the presidents were making wisecracks. Probably, right? yeah. yeah. Well, I found someone who contended that Lincoln was our first funny president. Wow. You never hear and that And he had that high-pitched him. voice, right? Isn't that what they always say? Really? Like, I he didn't seems know that. like he should have a deep voice, but I'm pretty sure his voice was high. Interesting. And he was so tall, too. Well, apparently, during the Civil War, he once wrote to General George McClellan, who was not sending his troops into battle, quote, if you don't want to use the army, I should like to borrow it for a while. Burn. <laughs> and he also Ooh, said, sick, burn. Burn. This is self burn. He said, If I were two faced, would I be wearing this one? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Actually, I'll buy the link. It was pretty yeah. funny. Yeah. All right. JFK also, he gave a speech in 1958 and he pulled out a fake telegram from his father and read off it quote, Dear Jack, don't buy a single vote more than is necessary. I'll be damned if I'm going to pay for a landslide. Uh, harry truman's vice president alvin barkley never heard that name before is famous for his line about two brothers he said that one ran away to sea and the other was elected vice president and nothing was heard from either of them ever again (laughs) (laughs) jimmy carter went to egypt and a guide told him that it only took 20 years to build the great pyramid and carter said i'm surprised that a government organization could do it that quickly (laughs) (laughs) and finally good old ronald reagan after he got shot by a would-be assassin in 1981 he said Working on his physicians. I hope you're all Republicans. 
Those are wisecracks. And that's when wisecrack facts. <laughs> so we got Roy Berenson in here to talk about firewood. You were telling me you do this as volunteer work. You cut firewood. Who do you cut firewood for? There are all kinds of people that heat with wood and for whatever reason, have lost the ability to supply themselves. And often these are families, let's say middle class, sometimes not so much, that heat with wood and due to some change, illness, injury, whatever, age, they're still relying on wood, but they lack the means to cut it and move it and split it themselves. Mm -hmm. Well, in some cases too, there's also tree removal for people that are, you know, they need some trees removed. They don't have the means to have that done professionally. Or in some other cases, even we team up with professional tree removal companies as we did, oh, I don't know, whatever, a month ago. And they bring in cranes and stuff like that. Uh -huh. And then they get the stuff safely on the ground and we take it from there. Right. So that's what I do. Wow. I'm impressed because if you handed me a piece of firewood and I'm like, this is just what you get from the store, but don't you have to season it? There's like so much involved in firewood. Yeah, there is. Any solid fuel, whatever that may be. Solid and liquid fuels generally are more complicated. They're very energy rich. However, getting them to the point of usability is kind of complicated. Right. You know, I mean, whether you're talking fuel oil, liquid fuel, or firewood, any fuel is complicated. Cutting your own fuel in terms of firewood is a big undertaking, yeah. So this is in our October issue of Popular Mechanics. We have this whole Popular Mechanics Guide to Firewood, which you did. What equipment do people need to start with? Like if you're going to do this from the beginning? At the very least, you need a chainsaw and you need some hand tools and some other stuff, most of which the average person already owns. You need a, let's say a wheelbarrow is very helpful. Mm -hmm. You got to move that wood around. You can't carry every stick of firewood. You know, sometimes mm -hmm. it has to be moved around in the woods. You need a chainsaw. You need all the safety gear that you should be wearing. Chaps, decent boots, gloves, eye and ear protection, hand protection. So you need that stuff. And most parts of the United States are going to either have cool or cold weather clothing because most firewood cutting goes on in cold weather. You need something to split that wood with. Now there's hand tools for that, mauls they're called, and splitting axes. And there's also gas engine driven wood splitters. As a volunteer cutting wood for other people, I have to be almost brutally efficient about it because it's already hard work. It's time consuming. It's very labor intensive. So how do I do that efficiently? And that was the origins of that article. Right. So what sorts of tips do you have that tend to improve efficiency? Well, with any process, you have to look at yourself and you have to look at your own biases and how you're going about that work and not make any assumptions. Look at your own work with a fresh, objective eye. And that can be difficult. Well, one of the things I realized in my woodcutting adventures was I was spending way too much time moving that wood around. You uh -huh. know, sort of like, well, I cut it, and then you throw the logs in the back of the truck, and then you throw them off at somebody's house, and the logs are in this rough pile, and then you untangle the pile, and then you split the wood. And I was like, no, that's the first thing that has to go. Uh -huh. and you know what? A lot of people who split wood do exactly that with any efficiency. You want to reduce your handling. That's like an industrial engineering principle. How many times are you picking up each piece of wood and moving it between point A and point B? So what's the solution? Chop it all up into firewood immediately? Well, yeah. I mean, splitting wood in the woods improves a couple of things. First of all, I used to just cut in bulk and load in bulk and offload in bulk and split in bulk. 
that can have some efficiencies depending on various factors. But what happens is you end up with a lot of handling, Mm -hmm. you know? So the goal now is I cut less wood, I split up what I have, I load the split wood into the truck. And then that split wood, when that wood comes off the truck, that's where it's staying until it's transferred inside Uh for burning. So a big hunk of the handling process is eliminated. Right. Now that work is done in the woods, which is also contributing to a neater, quieter yard. You know, it's not my yard, it's somebody else's yard normally (laughs) this is going Uh on. uh But still, uh, running a wood splitter, you know, that's one thing. Well, you said running a wood splitter. Are there things that will split the wood that are not a mall? Yeah, yeah oh. machines. Oh, oh I didn't it's know. A, it's a gas engine. Well, you're from Florida. And, you know, I understand. <laughs> and not the most mechanically inclined. Well, it's funny you say that. Outside of this article, I was looking at some historical data uh-huh. about wood burning in the U.S., and I found a map produced by the census people uh-huh. just before I was born in the 1950s. Wood was still one of the principal fuel supplies in the United States, Uh interestingly enough. The bulk of that wood was burned in the South. Interesting. In any case, to your point, there are machines that split. They're called splitters. They have a gas engine. They drive a hydraulic pump, just like a hydraulic arm on a backhoe or earth-moving machine. Uh It's a piston-activated thing. An excavation arm drives a wedge into a log or rams the log into a wedge. That sounds like a very scary tool. Actually, it's very slow speed. Oh, good. Especially if two people or even more team up and they know what they're doing. You have like one person running the splitter, one person loading the splitter, and one person offloading. It can be incredibly efficient. Uh huh. Three people can, with the right equipment and providing they're physically fit, you can process a lot of firewood. By the way, there are machines called firewood processors where a big long log moves in one end of the assembly and nice neat 16 inch or whatever logs split and cross cut move off the other end. Well, I bet that's what they use for the stuff I buy at the supermarket. You're exactly right, Jackie. And that tends to be uh, birch and some other very uniformly sized woods that lend themselves to this highly mechanized wood processing. Is that what you use as like a, a tool uh, if I'm like te- that? If I'm teaming up with people, yes, some of our volunteers, by the way, I'm not the only person that does this. There are other people that have equipment that I team up with. They have wood splitters. And in other cases, you know what? I split by hand. Right. You know, especially when I'm splitting by hand, which is really hard work. Not exaggerating. I mean, you know, morning splitting wood leaves me tired. That would leave me tired. Yeah, well, it's a lot of upper body stuff. You know, every swing of a maul or a splitting axe, a splitting axe is like an axe, but it has a thicker wedge-shaped head. The advantage of a maul versus a splitting axe is that you can swing a splitting axe much faster than you can a maul. The average person can. Uh Now, the impact energy increases with the speed of the swing. You get more bang for the buck, if you will, with a lighter tool that you can swing faster than you will from a heavier tool that oh, you swing slower. Interesting. What would be the point of using a heavy tool then? Seems like well, you just shouldn't. Um, if you have enough upper body strength, you're young enough. A buddy of mine, former neighbor, Frank Trofe, was a machinist, a country boy, fed his family on venison and the fish he caught and all this other stuff. He was a wood heater. Uh-huh. Frank was unbelievable. <laughs> Frank, I hope you're listening. <laughs> uh, to you what, should tell him. Yeah. To watch Frank with a wood splitting wall was unbelievable. Wow. How efficient. And that's your goal. 
every swing produces a piece of firewood. Right. And that was Frank. I mean, he would hit the log standing up. He would hit it on the side. He would hit it, you know, when it was like fall over and be partially crooked. Every swing of that maul in Frank's hands produced a piece of firewood. And I was like, Frank, I could do this for a hundred years and never be that efficient. Wow. He was like, well, I've been doing this since I was a kid. Well, okay, well. I got to meet this Frank. Oh, yeah. Well, Frank <laughs> is an awesome guy. Now that we're not neighbors anymore, I don't see him very much. Every once in a while when I'm back in that town, I run across him. And uh, again, you know, you would never know it talking to him. He's just a very quiet, unassuming guy. He doesn't spend hours in the gym or whatever. But you see that guy work and you see him like split wood. And it's like, this is how people tamed the frontier. <laughs> That's high praise coming from you, Roy. Well, I mean, I've seen a lot of people in the building trades and as a volunteer, you know, I mean, when you see impressive stuff, you have to give these people credit. Again, most of them are not trained or whatever, but they're just really good at what they do. So, in fact, one time I brought a load of firewood with Frank over and just to watch that guy, like his speed in loading and unloading a pickup truck and with a wheelbarrow, it's like, it's unbelievable. Wow. Well, it can be done. If you think you're a better firewood cutter than Frank, maybe you should email Roy. Send me a video. You know, <laughs> that would be the only thing that would convince me. You'd have to be pretty fast. So Let the competition begin. Yeah, right. There we go. <laughs> Our technology editor, Alex George, was just telling me about some really cool car video game that he has been trying out. What is cool about it? It's a car you can't drive normally or something? So this came up because... The November issue, Ezra Dyer drove this car called the McLaren Senna. You know, every once in a while, they say they're selling it for a million dollars, but there's only 500 of them, and you can only get invited to buy it if you get invited by the company. It's these, like, super exclusive, superlative everything kind of car. Uh It's one of these mid-engine cars that'll go zero to 60 in less than three seconds, setting lap records. That sounds fancy. Does it have the doors that go up? Of course, of like, course. like okay. this, yeah. Yeah, doors that go like this, not doors that go like that. It's, Anyone uh, who's, a, who's a Silicon Valley fan. Oh, what's that guy's this? name? The Sean Parker character. Anyway, it's the car company that he's talking about, those uh, dihedral doors like that. Okay. But the Senna Wait, is what are those called? Dihe- dihedral, yeah, as we're wow. talking that. Huh. That's what that means when they kind of go up and they go, an angle like that. Oh, interesting. Like Lamborghinis have scissor doors that go up. Uh-huh. And then Gullwing or Falcon Wing, whatever you want to call it. The ones are the that ones go that go like out that. like a hawk. Right, yeah. Okay. And dihedral, those kind of angled ones that go up like that. So Ezra got to drive this thing. It's one of these cars that... Ezra's our car editor if you're just tuning in. Yeah, we were talking about this. And if you're a kid and you like doodled cars or like... I had like little 18 scale like model cars or, you know, you pull out posters from car magazines, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. It's one of those like grade of cars. Like oh, okay. it's this crazy aerodynamic looking thing. Like a car you're probably not ever going to get to drive. Precisely. And right. a huge majority of the population might not ever even see in person. You know, he made a little comment about this, about how... How do you geek out about a car like that when you're never going to get to see it? Maybe at a car show, something like that. Right. And there's this new game that just came out. I think it was September 28th. It's been this best-selling game. It's called Forza Horizon 4. And it's a series of racing games. And the car that's on the box art, that's on all the promo material, that like the first car you get to drive in the game is this McLaren Senna. Oh. There's kind of this moment where I was like, oh, man, this is kind of cool. There's a game called Gran Turismo way long ago in the PlayStation. I remember hearing about that game. If you were a car geek, you know, the graphics look horrific by comparison, but that was how you kind of experience these cars that you never get to see in real life. And you get uh-huh. to, you know, race them on these fancy tracks, that kind of thing. And the McLaren Senna is in there. And, you know, if you're a car geek like me, it's just so cool. Are the other cars that are in the game also real cars? Yeah, they do. It's this kind of feat of licensing where they get new cars and old cars, one-off stuff that like, you'd only buy in Europe. You know, you start out, you get to drive something like that. You get to drive the Bugatti Chiron, but then you also go and you drive 
a first generation Mazda Miata or something like that. And it kind of has physics that feel like it and performance that feels like it. And then if you're into this stuff, it's just a really step beyond getting an iPhone wallpaper of something like that or right. watching video, a YouTuber talk about driving the car. It's kind of like a VR, like McLaren experience. Oh, totally. Yeah. You're like, I'm, you get to do this. You're the star of it. You get to drive it. So you have actually driven a McLaren before, I know. I have, yeah. When you did it in the video game, was it similar? <laughs> Yeah. One of the things that stands out that the video game gets accurate is that with a lot of these high-performance cars, if you have to slam on the brakes really hard, this is called active aerodynamics, where the rear wing of the car will go from being kind of horizontal to almost vertical. Wait, what is a rear wing? That's the sport, like, in oh, the Fast and Furious, uh-huh. like, that's that huge piece of aerodynamic structure on the back of, like, a Honda Civic that uh-huh. you see. And then these cars, they actually move around according to what's going on with the car. Whoa, like an airplane wing. Exactly, yeah. Wow. So you slam on the brakes, and then the rear wing just goes like vertical to give you as much drag and air resistance as possible. Oh, that is crazy. Yeah, so you see stuff like that, and you're like, that's really wild. Like, that's what the car is actually doing. And you're driving, the one chance I've had to drive uh, the 720S, which was like a magical weekend, you hit the brakes going at high enough speed, and you see the rearview mirror, you see the wing kind of go up like that, and you're like, that's so cool. I mean, you feel like an astronaut, like you're just I, in command of like it. this crazy piece of machinery. Yeah. And you get a little taste of that in the video game too. So that was like a little overlap where I'm like, okay, I'm not old enough to you know, have outgrown video games quite yet. Who do you think is buying this? You said this is the most popular downloaded video oh, game. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's all over is the it world. Like, is it kids? Is it I like- think it's people like me. I think it's people who, you know, so I'm 31, having hung out in friends' parents' basements playing these games like at sleepovers and stuff. And now it looks to the point where the graphics are just insane. It looks really realistic. You know, they have these physics down and all that. It just feels like a more mature version of that. And uh, yeah, if you're the kind of guy who would buy like a 4K TV and buy an Xbox One X that can handle that kind of graphics, I think that's part of it. And I think also just anybody who's into cars and um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of overlap with that, I think. And so remind me of the name and tell me how much this thing costs and how people get it. Forza Horizon 4. And it's on uh, Xbox One. I don't know if they have a sale yet, but 60 bucks for it. Okay. It's a whole lot of money. That's a whole lot cheaper than a McLaren, though. <laughs> it's about, yeah. <laughs> how much does one of these McLarens... Like, like in real life? Just generally a McLaren, how much does it cost? So it's weird to th- talk about these because they, like I said, you know, they only make 500 of them. Everybody buys them right away. You know, they're already spoken for, basically. So the only time you get to buy them is when they go up for an auction or something like that. If you were among the invitees to buy one, like one guy I know who... They had a ceremony for his acquisition of it here in New York. What? He was a... How do you get on this list? It's... They know you. It's good deep waters to go into. But yes, it's, you have like a history with the company or you're, you know, just kind of show some loyalty to it or fanaticism for it. This guy, his name is Fox, F-U-X. It's a Cuban guy and he was a, uh, I think it was mattresses or his industry that he made just this mint in. And he took order of one. Well, everybody needs a mattress. Seriously. I mean, that's how he did it, man. Yeah. And he took order of one here in New York and... Yeah, you get invited on the list for it. I don't know exactly what they pay for it. They say the MSRP for it is like a million dollars or 800, something like that. But it's more about exclusive. That's for another but it's podcast. That's the exclusivity kind of, of it. That is wild. Yeah, somebody should go and probably car magazines have done this, right? Figure out who all these people are. Yeah, it's a fascinating world for it. But again, for as we're going to talk about this, about how, where do these kind of cars fit in our world? Like we're never, you know, we're not looking for practical buying advice about this thing. But right. if we're never going to see it, how we're going to geek out on it. And uh, games like this, they're a pretty cool way of doing that. Yeah, for 60 bucks, you can try out the new McLaren. That's it, yeah. So for today's testing table, Peter Martin had a cool idea. How did you find this thing? It's a weighted blanket, right? So 
I've seen ads for them everywhere. And then one of our contributors, Francine, was telling me that she loves hers. Oh. She just, Francine seems like she would have one. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever she gets upset about something or sort of anxious about something, she wakes up before in the morning, can't sleep. She pulls her weighted blanket on for 10 minutes, falls back asleep. That seems and like then, a good reason to have one. So I thought, that sounds really good. I know and love someone who's very anxious and on the phone with us today. <laughs> uh, that would be your wife, Meryl, <laughs> who is taking a break from your new baby. Yeah. To help us learn <laughs> podcasts. Thanks, Mary. My pleasure. I thought we should try it with Meryl just because... You know, having a new baby kind of makes you anxious, adds a little stress. Totally. And if this blanket works, it would be great. So I thought she was the perfect tester for this. Nice. So what brand did you try? So she tried, it's from a company in Brooklyn huh. called Gravity. It's a 15 pound weighted blanket. You're supposed to get something that's between like 7 to 12 or 15% of your body weight. Okay. So how about 10%? Which <laughs> <laughs> does not mean that Meryl weighs that that's 10% of her body weight, but that is the lightest <laughs> blanket that they sell. Right. Um, you didn't tell me that revealing my body weight on <laughs> was like, part of the deal. <laughs> She's like, now I'm really anxious and you should be even more anxious. <laughs> they first sent a 25 pound blanket that I sent back. So that would have really sized <laughs> you up a little bit. Me. So they say that these things are scientifically proven to naturally reduce stress and increase relaxation through deep pressure stimulation. Part that I really liked was that it said it recreated the feeling of being swaddled like a baby. And we have been swaddling a lot and did not know what swaddling was three months ago. <laughs> and I mean, it makes the baby sleep. So maybe it would help Meryl, we thought. But so it stimulates these pressure points. They say it can be used to treat PTSD, insomnia, ah. OCD. I've heard of these for dogs. Really? Yeah. You can swaddle a dog. And the, <laughs> if your dog's anxious when it like there's lightning or thunder or something, you can wrap your dog up in a blanket and they will usually. I guess that down. makes sense. Like it's supposed thing. to just feel like a big hug. Yeah. So if your spouse or partner is not doing their job hugging you, get away to blanket. Yeah. So Meryl, what did you think of this? Did you like it? I didn't really. Really? Really. It just didn't seem like it was for me necessarily. I found it a little oppressive, sort of. I did not like the feeling of the weight. Like kind of trapped? Yeah, I mean, so the biggest problem for me was when I tried it, you know, at night to go to sleep. I guess I had two issues with it. One, I really didn't like the feeling of it on my feet. I sleep on my back typically, mm -hmm. and I felt like it was pinning down my feet. So that was sort of uncomfortable and irritating. Like forcing your ankles to extend. Oh, right. Yeah, way. I could see that. So eventually I just sort of pulled it up so that it was covering me above the ankle. Like a hobo bag. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I imagine a hobo bed looks like <laughs> from like an old movie. Sure. <laughs> so that did help. The other thing I didn't love because it was weighted, if I'm moving in my sleep, I woke up a couple mornings and it had fallen on the floor. Uh -huh. Because, you know, it's sort of with the weight, once I started to tilt one way, it sort of, the weight pulled it down. So... I guess those are my biggest complaints. And in general, I don't know. I don't think the feeling of being hugged all night was for me. <laughs> Has Peter tried that? Has he just like tried to hug you all night and that doesn't work either? I like to cuddle and then I like to sleep independently. Uh -huh. So I feel like perhaps someone who... That means I go to the couch. <laughs> I'm going to sleep independently now if you could please leave. You could get out of this room. Thank you. So maybe, you know, someone who can easily fall asleep cuddling or something like that, maybe they would like it more than I did. Right. I'm similar in that way. I can't, you know, my boyfriend will put his arm around me and then I'll be like, and I'm going to sleep now. And the <laughs> yeah, arm goes it. away. Thank you. <laughs> so, Peter, how much does this cost? It is $249. Ooh. You can tell it's a very high quality blanket. The outside's a nice cotton and it's kind of cool the way the beads. You played with it quick when we had it in the office before uh -huh. I took it home, right? Yep, yep. It almost feels like little 
like glass beads. That sounds more delicate than it is. But you <laughs> can sort of hear breakable. and feel them. Right. There's like some little innards. Yeah. Some heavy innards. I think all the stitching, all the patterns don't let them gather in the bottom because otherwise you'd have 15 pounds of these little weighted beads <laughs> at the bottom and the top would have nothing in it. But yeah, it seems like a very nice blanket blanket in terms of because I tried it out just, you know, for science. Right. It felt good. Right. There was something when you pulled it up, it's just like, okay, this feels nice. Like when you wake up on a cold morning and all the covers are on you. Right. I wonder actually if it would be more comfortable in winter even That's when true. you really we, want some, because it's been pretty warm lately. Yeah, we mm-hmm. did force Meryl to try it when we had to have the air conditioning on so Ooh. that she wouldn't get hot underneath it. Yeah. Cool. Well, too bad you didn't like it, but I guess the way we end this is, would you buy this? Sounds like no. No, I would not buy it for myself. Okay. But Francine did say yes. That's our, Francine uh, that's loves, our food editor. She swears so. by them. So I guess it's up to you. If you think that you might like being hugged, maybe try it. And if you are not a hugger, <laughs> maybe don't go for it. And <laughs> just get a regular unweighted blanket. Awesome. <laughs> thanks, Meryl. Well, yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you, Meryl. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's our show, y'all. The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Brandcasters, Inc. at www.brandcastingu.com. We'd like to thank Bettina Warshaw and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about life hacks, projects, science, and technology, check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.